You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of crafting one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. I'm Katherine Klatsker, and I wrote You Will Never Be Normal, a memoir. Katherine Klatsker is a retired pediatric ICU nurse, mother of three, and mental health advocate. Her personal essays have been published in multiple journals, as well as her contributions to two mental health anthologies. She currently resides and writes in Los Angeles, California, where she has taken numerous UCLA Extension writing classes since 2000. Her memoir, You Will Never Be Normal, was released in May 2021. It is her first book. In You Will Never Be Normal, Katherine Klatsker navigates through denial, dissociation, and grief to eventually arrive at acceptance and healing of her traumatic dissociative identity disorder, DID, and PTSD. Her journey forces her to reflect on her early childhood in the Midwest, growing up wholly dissociated from the molestation in her family with an alcoholic father and her 12 sisters and brothers. At 16, she escapes her chaotic home and moves in with an older man. By 18, Klatsker is widowed with an infant son. Three decades later find her resisting unbidden early memories and alarming inner voices. When she dissociates or splits off from herself, she cannot stay with herself as one person. Traumatizing events, beginning in meditation, launch her into a therapy that extends over many extraordinary years as her dissociated identities, or parts, intrude with increasing boldness. In You Will Never Be Normal, Klatsker details the ways her alternate identities were created and what each contributes to her life set against the backdrop of her steady second marriage, work as an ICU pediatric nurse, a life filled with children, and a desire to hide her DID until it becomes inexorably integrated into her whole identity. She finally believes the trauma of her past and the genius of having unconsciously created DID parts of herself to hold the intolerable. Klatsker cuts through stereotypes around DID. She normalizes it as a response to complex trauma and emphasizes the role that each part played in keeping her safe. This is a story that tackles themes of sexual abuse, family relationships, romantic relationships, self-harm and self-love, mental illness, therapy, and the two ends of human experience, love and death. It concludes as a deep investigation of self-compassion and the reconciliation of opposite realities. I think this might be the place to mention that it's a memoir about my personal experience with DID. DID is Dissociative Identity Disorder, and it's what people used to call Multiple Identity Disorder which is enormously misunderstood. It's a condition that generally starts in childhood. When kids dissociate into other parts of themselves to keep the knowledge of the trauma away from their consciousness, since that's what it is, I mean, that's where the idea came from. The truth is that at first, in my first creative nonfiction class, my purpose was to simply write family stories, and the inspiration for this book evolved in those classes. And what happened is I thought, oh, I'm going to write wonderful stories about my sisters. I have seven sisters, and there are tons of stories, and they just didn't work. I realized, finally, that my story was what I was not saying. You know, they say that 
the uncomfortable part is where the story is. And my DID was unbelievable even to me that it happened, and I needed to write it. I think there's usually a sentence that will pop into my head, and then I just go. It's not always easy. I mean, sometimes the sentences come when you're driving. In fact, the very first thing I wrote, okay, I've always been a writer, but I went decades without writing. I had been, you know, I wrote lots of little stories for my sisters when I was a child. I was driving home from work one morning. I had worked night shift, and a story popped into my head. And I was trying to remember it as I was driving. And I got home and I ran in the house and I grabbed a notebook and I sat down and I wrote it. And that was the first thing that got me started writing again. It was about Carrie and her bear. And, and, and it seemed to be a children's story. But the most important thing that happened with that is I was feeling the energy and the satisfaction of writing again. And that's what drove me. It was that feeling. The other thing with that story was that it was a very thinly disguised story of a child who's very neglected, and I didn't really see where that was going. But that's when I signed up for my very first extension class, which was children's poetry, which was a very extensive class, and I learned a lot. And then I kept going. I kept signing up for poetry classes and children's literature classes. I was like halfway through my intermediate creative nonfiction class when the instructor contacted me and said she wanted to meet with me before class. And we met and she said, I love your writing. You really do write well. And I can see that you really have a story and it's an important story. And I just want you to be sure to sign up for advanced creative nonfiction, she said. So that's what I did over 17 years. <laughs> so, but that started it. And I think, you know, the, the, the interesting thing about that was the energy. And I knew I have to keep writing. But I still didn't truly know where it was going. And it was scary to write about what I didn't want to write about. At a certain point, I was dipping into mental illness account and that I was outing myself. My book is divided into like three threads. So there's the thread of the DID, the thread of my backstory, and of seminal events that I think contribute. And then there's the inner story of the five primary parts that are the alternate identities, who seriously have their own personalities. And then there's my reflections as I move between those three threads. What I wrote first if I'm remembering correctly, might have actually been one of the seminal events rather than directly into DID. I think it may have been when I left home at the age of 16 and all the things that happened, meeting my first husband, being widowed, having a child that was two months old when he died. And I mean, the various things that went into that backstory might have been written first. From there, I could look and see, oh, there's a hint of what was going on. And oh, there's a, you know, and I think the important thing is that I was writing to understand what had happened and that the writing did help me to understand what had happened and to actually have a larger view too. I was journaling during the entire process. I'm journaling now, but for sure started journaling around 2000 and the journals were really useful in terms of tracking my story, really looking at what happened when and 
pulling it together because I had to double check myself and make sure I was really remembering right. It's nonfiction, but it was challenging because even though I wasn't creating my characters, I mean, they're all real, I had to be very careful to be truthful and to really flesh them out, particularly people like my therapist, my husband's my father, anybody that's in the book I had to talk to. There's even a place where I have included a little chapter about my daughter who was born with a congenital eye condition. I was pretty sure she didn't want me to write about her, (laughs) and I had to let her know I wasn't telling her story, that anything in there relates to my story. And I realized that, you know, when I would give people dialogue, that it couldn't possibly be word for word. But I think that that's well understood in creative nonfiction, that you can give the dialogue as you remember it. So I did that. I was journaling during the entire process. I'm journaling now. I for sure started journaling around 2000. And the journals were really useful in terms of really tracking my story, really looking at what happened when and pulling it together. I was working 12-hour shifts at the hospital. I had to fit my writing around that work schedule. And I was used to going 12, 13 hours in a row at work. And that's sort of what happened with writing. I would have big bursts a few times a week, maybe three, and go for hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. And and the words would just flow. The unfortunate thing about working in bursts like that is that I have to actually remind myself to get up and move around because I can go way too long without eating or stretching or, you know, anything. But that's my process. I did not make an outline until after I had written most of the book because then I wanted to see how it did fit together, how it did flow. I even... (laughs) strung a clothesline across this room and clipped all the chapters to the clothesline so that I could get this visual of how to move things around and where things fit, which was really only because I couldn't use the floor. I had a cat at the time who would have rearranged everything. It worked really well. I mean, I've used it again for essays that I'm trying to put together into another project. There were some chapters that I threw out that were, you know, could stand alone as stories, but they didn't move my story forward. Sometimes I find that the whole first paragraph of anything I write, I can throw out, but that's what we learn. In the course of writing it, I was publishing excerpts in journals, which was helpful because it helped to figure out what worked and what didn't work. And also I was hoping it would get my name out there and I would find an agent, but that's a whole other story that I I never did find. But because I was doing that, I made up a website, katherine.klatsker.com. But I wanted to have it be an information place about DID as well. So I was putting my story, to some extent, and information about DID on that website, where other survivors, they found it. I didn't tell anybody I even had it, but people found it. And other people who were struggling, and therapists even, began to contact me and tell me how important it was to write this story. That was unexpected. Because I wrote it 
to understand what had happened, I tackled themes of sexual abuse, family relationships, romantic relationships, self-harm and self-love and mental illness and therapy and love and death. The writing itself gave me the space to look deeply at that whole picture. Therefore, when I hear back from people who've read the book, they're not all from backgrounds that were troublesome, but they relate to various things in the book that do strike them that are universal. And that's worked out. I mean, I've had people tell me that they really related, and I know that they weren't relating to the DID. (laughs) They were relating to a lot of other things that contributed to the story. In the course of time, it has evolved, but it still has those pages about DID, what it is, and a number of resources and sources on the information that's there. I had to learn to separate my academic writing from my personal writing, and I had to make a decision in this book. It would be personal and not academic because it needed to be that to tell the story. I had to go back in once I made that decision and not only remove all the footnotes and remove all the clinical language, I had to really focus on being able to express and describe my feelings and emotions, which was difficult. That was hard work for me, especially because in dissociation, you don't express emotions. I had to do it. I knew that I had to do it. If I wanted it to be a personal work from inside DID, I had to make myself vulnerable. And that's what I learned, that that was what made the real story possible. Almost every time before I write or edit, I do meditate. And I think that that helps me have a more stable ground that I'm starting from. That helps. It's an integral part of the book that I was in meditation when this practically, I mean, it was not a psychotic episode, but it was very close, (laughs) that came up, which does occur in deep meditation with people who have a history of trauma or who are emotionally fragile, which I didn't know at the time. So I had had a meditation practice for a couple of years before that happened, which opened up the whole DID crisis. And I have maintained that practice Although I had to adjust it during the time of crisis and and keep it, you know, really limited. I don't know if I would say it's Zen or if it's, I mean, I, I don't know that it's that easily classified, but my teacher has quite a background in Zen. So I think that that has been a huge influence. When I was at the hospital and we were in pediatric ICU, we would have periods of time when we would have more deaths that we could handle very easily emotionally because the most critically ill don't always survive. And, of course, this has all been worsened during the COVID crisis. People have had a chance to see how it affects the doctors and the nurses and the respiratory therapists when they keep losing patients. But we had had a spell at work where we had had a number of deaths and it was really taking a toll of everybody. And I was very active in family-centered care, and I was chair of that committee. And I said, look, I want to go to a meditation retreat in Santa Fe and have it be part of family-centered care with what I learned. And everybody said yes, and so I got to go. 
And it was like a 10-day silent retreat on being with dying. And it was at the Zendo of Roshi Joan Halifax in Santa Fe. And it was phenomenal. I went back to work and made a full, you know, like three-hour report to the committee of everything that had happened and all the things that we could do to help people who are coping with death and loss, actually. And the committee said, well, we have to do that. And we did it for 10 years. That's the kind of meditation that I'm talking about. It doesn't have any mantras. It doesn't have any of that. It is a matter of sitting with yourself and of sitting with mindfulness of what's coming up in the moment. The revision process for me was ongoing because what I really learned is that writing is rewriting, and I kept at it. I had to learn not to edit while I was writing so much because I tend to do that. I edit everything always. And if I kept editing while I was writing, I was slowing down my writing and I wasn't getting my writing done. And so it's an effort to actually not keep editing. My method is that I write both longhand and on the computer, and I go back and forth and come up with a version that I save as a Word document. But I can't do just one or the other. I have to go back and forth, and I read it out loud. I really get a sense of, you know, what worked in longhand didn't work and how it sounds. And I had learned a lot by critiquing other people in workshops, that I would apply those same things that I did with other people's work to my work. And so that helped a lot. It actually helped a whole lot. About two years for the first draft, that was when I started sending out queries. I really didn't know that it wasn't finished. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't. And I sent out so many queries over the next six years, over 300, and I had 100 rejections, and all the rest were just no response. And the people that rejected it said they really liked the story. In some cases, they stayed up all night and read the whole thing, but they didn't think they could sell it, which... I ended up hearing a lot. And so that was the same time that I started sending out excerpts to journals. And right about the exact same time, the first story was published in a narrative medicine journal. I realized now that story was the one that was about my daughter. That was the first one. Over the next six years after I started sending out queries, I had stories in two mental health anthologies, and I had six more stories that were published. Only three were excerpts, though. I mean, I was trying to just keep writing and keep getting my name out there and keep learning because then I realized I was constantly revising even then, that every big rejection was (laughs) was another rewrite. And... It was really useful to work with other editors. The editors in the journals really taught me what they were looking for. They taught me how to streamline, and they taught me things that I had touched on but not totally learned. And again, I threw out a lot more chapters. I really tightened it, and I did a lot of changes of pieces that were being published elsewhere. I never did get an agent. I did finally start sending out excerpts, which helped. And I was also doing other things. I retired from critical care nursing at the end of 2012. I kept up that same pattern of writing because it had become habit. But the other things that I did is I went to Ragdale, which is an artist's 
retreat center, and I packed up all my journals in the suitcase and took these heavy journals all the way to Illinois to this writer's retreat, and I totally organized the structure that actually still stands. I had also gone to River Teeth nonfiction conference in 2014, so it was still in that period, and that was invaluable for the workshopping that I was able to do, and really wonderful people to interact with. It was great. So I was doing things like that, and I sent off my book, as it was then in 2015, to a contest from Stillhouse Press. It was the Mary Roberts Reinhardt nonfiction contest, and I was shortlisted. I didn't get it, but I was shortlisted. Subsequently, I later was longlisted for the Santa Fe Writers Project. I was still, you know, really frustrated with not getting anywhere and with moving things around, and it just wasn't working. And I even went and shredded the whole book. I took boxes of my writings and my notes and everything to an industrial shredder. And I shredded the whole thing and I deleted most of everything I had in the computer, but I kept a skeletal piece of it. And then I let it rest for almost a year. I mean, it was not quite a year. And all I did was take poetry classes during that time. I just didn't look at it. When I got back to it, I realized I had been too close to it. I did need the distance. It really worked for me. At that point, I hired an editor who went through it with a a fine-tooth comb, and I revised it again. And I wrote to Stillhouse Press, and it was just an idea that popped into my head that they had shortlisted this four years previously. And I told them all the changes that had been made, how it had been reworked. And I asked if they didn't want to look at it again. And they said, yes. <laughs> and so I sent it to them and they wrote back and said that they wanted it. And so the place that had shortlisted me before was the place that published the book. It was interesting how that worked out. It was very easy to work with the editors at Stillhouse. Stillhouse turned out to be very collaborative. It is a small press, but it was pretty easy to work with them. They did almost no developmental edits. They said it was already pretty much there. The things that they wanted to edit that I objected to, I was able to have the conversation and they respected my judgment. Usually they were things that had to do with DID, misunderstandings that they had. So that, for instance, I might use a plural pronoun when speaking as one person, but that's correct in DID. And so we had to go through a number of those kinds of things so that they understood, oh, that's how that works. And they were very receptive. They never asked me to change my story. The thing that surprised me when they first accepted the book was the long timeline. They gave me a release date that was like two years down the road. And I thought, is this normal? (laughs) And and they did eventually change it. So it was a year and a half instead of two years. But that was surprising to me. The other big surprising thing was that, I mean, I knew that I would have to contribute to or be very active with publicizing the book. And almost nobody, no press does that for you. You have to actually take the responsibility, and even if you don't know what you're doing. But I didn't know that I had to get all the permissions. And so I did need a number of permissions because I quoted different authors at various places in the book. 
I was responsible for making sure I had all those permissions, and so I did. What I found was that the living authors and Lewis Jenkins' widow were totally receptive and generous and pleasant to talk to and deal with, and they were just wonderful. They couldn't have been better. The others, though, I had to find my way through the Copyright Clearance Center marketplace for two different permissions. Another one was a large publishing house, and the most difficult one was, but I did finally get it, was Sheet Music LLC. I actually had two places where I used lyrics from two different artists, and by the time I tracked, I went through Sony, I went through, I mean, all these various places that I thought would be the right place to contact, and they weren't. They all sent me to other places, and it seemed like it was a dead end at a certain point, because the quote in the beginning of the book is from a Leonard Cohen song, and of course he died in the last few years. So the question for me was, is it with his son? Is it with the people who've inherited? What is it? And I finally, finally found the sheet music LLC that I had to go through. I think the way I found it, to be honest, I had another book I had been reading where they gave, you know, acknowledgments for lyrics that were all from this same place. And I thought, "Uh huh, I wonder about that. And so I started checking that out. Turns out it is all centralized. It is all from a central place. And it's not cheap. And so I had to negotiate that, too, with the publisher. Well, how much would they pay (laughs) to work it out? Because I had to pay for part of it, too. I gave up on the second set of lyrics that I wanted to use later toward the end of the book from another artist because I could refer to it without quoting it, and it was just as effective, and I didn't have that money either. So I kept the Leonard Cohn because, to me, it really made a difference. On It's on the first page of the book. It set the scene really nicely, I thought, so I really decided to keep that. So the pandemic has actually affected a lot of having the book. I did a release party on Zoom. You know, obviously couldn't reach a lot of people as if I, you know, it had been in person. I haven't had any book signing. During the time that things sort of semi-opened up and you could go into bookstores again and talk to the owners and make sure they had the book, I found that was wonderful. I mean, there's a picture that one of the local bookstores has on their website of me with the book, and we're all in masks. I mean, (laughs) and that's how it's been. I, I look forward to doing more things. I had signed up, actually, for a couple of book festivals, which were both canceled because of the pandemic. I am signed up for another one that will be in April that I hope won't be canceled. Because I I want that exposure, and I'm not good at, well, I'm actually an introvert anyway, so I'm actually not good at reaching out to try to get the bookstores to do a Zoom with me. I mean, I feel like I would need more people, that those work best if you have two or three authors, and, and I don't actually know anyone. That's been hard. The response from people has been really positive. Although there are some people that you get nothing, and so you realize there's something else going on for them. They either hated it, or sometimes they'll tell me they had to put it aside and go back to it because there are some intense places in it. 
I'm actually talking about the trauma in the family that created the DID in me. But it it really ends well. <laughs> and <laughs> I've had almost no response from my family. One brother wrote to me and said how much he loved it and how much he believed it and agreed with it. I have a sister who's one sister out of seven who's very supportive. I have other sisters who are just really quiet. It was astonishing to me that my sisters had no trouble with dissociation. It was not really news to them. What they had trouble with was talking about the abuse in the family, and they did not want that. They, they wanted silence, continued silence. And I had actually offered them all drafts so that they could approve or give feedback or whatever. They're all disguised in the book. And they basically, my sisters were almost unanimous in saying that they didn't want their children and grandchildren to know this story. That has changed, obviously, because the children, the adult children and grandchildren have found it on their own, and they seem to not question it at all. So that's where it is. I think writing the story not only helped me understand what had happened, but I noticed other changes. I noticed that I had more empathy at the end of it than I had had at the beginning, and I wondered about that. You know, what? why is that? And I realized there had been a shift, and that that shift had occurred because the whole act of writing is a creative act that lets you see the whole picture, that lets you open up. It was remarkable to observe that. My advice to writers would be to write, to not worry about whether it's published or not, because it's still going to be invaluable in just the way that it helps you understand what it is that you're writing. My advice to people who are struggling with issues of mental health would be to really know that you're not alone. I think more than anything, books like this do convey that message that you are not alone, and I am not alone. We are not alone. And the more we can name what's happening, the more we can actually heal. And now, a reading from You Will Never Be Normal. I'm going to read a chapter that is the fifth chapter in the book, so it's pretty near the beginning, and it's called Don't Trust Parents. I took an education day in June for Dr. Paul Brenner's Healing the Healer seminar. The flyer for his triangles process said it helped to make the unconscious conscious to learn conscious skills to manage change and uncertainty in one's life. That sounded good to me. He's talking about wholeness, I thought. I needed to keep myself healthy and intact for work, and the continuing education units to maintain my nursing license were my secondary goal. I settled into the unadorned, narrow, Sheraton Pasadena hotel ballroom that smelled of coffee and not much else. By afternoon, the white linen table coverings were beaded with water from the iced water pitchers spilled around the scattered cups and goblets in the small ballroom. When we came to the 
triangles, diagrams and exercises where I identified what was classified as my addiction to independence, my notes ran off the pages of Dr. Paul's handouts. My coping style was described as fear of inappropriate togetherness and my commanding underlying ethic, don't trust parents, don't trust authority. Formula self-diagnosis was not what I expected at the seminar. As if to confirm this theory, I did not trust it. I kept quiet. Many people spoke up, yet no one else in the small conference room seemed to have come up with such oppositional self-information. We were all medical professionals. We were probably all wounded in our own ways. That appeared to be why we chose health care. That common motivation united us but I felt isolated in my negativity. As Dr. Paul walked among the class, I pointed to my paper and said hesitantly, Do you think I did this right? He stooped his long frame to look. His gray hair seemed premature, at odds with bushy dark brown eyebrows, though his face was stamped with tiny character lines. He turned his gaze to me. Yes, you did it right. He placed his finger where I had written, fear of inappropriate closeness. This is strongly suggestive of an abused child. You were abused. His voice was close and low. I'm sorry. I dropped my eyes. I could not look at him. He knows. My stomach hurt. I felt like I needed to get out, to run away. I sat stock still, staring at my hands on the paper. It seemed like nothing moved. Everything was motionless. Nausea. Could he really know that? It felt invasive. I felt ashamed. I could not keep hearing Dr. Paul say, you were abused. I could not tolerate having what was hidden exposed so openly. Did he say sexually abused? The fragmentary thought of sexual abuse was so abhorrent My mind closed like a spring-loaded trap and whizzed off with a speed that left me wondering what it was I was thinking a second before. I could not stay there. I could not know. Mercifully, I went away. My memory is blank. My parts and my flashbacks were triggered by emotional overload. They were designed to keep me safe. I did not know if it was moments or minutes before I mentally returned. I saw Dr. Paul talking to me in a curiously soft tone. What's wrong with him, I wondered, studying the strange, holding-his-breath expression on his face. I heard him say something about therapy, and of course, a seminar like this can't address all this. He was still looking at me funny. In retrospect, I know he was watching me dissociate, watching my little girl part take over. Perhaps I looked blank, staring at nothing. I've been told that when she protected me, my eyes typically deviated and my hands often gripped each other, despite whatever measure of stomach pain or nausea I experienced inside. She was there to suppress memories awakened by Dr. Paul, switching to where nothing bad could happen. That was her job. I felt embarrassed and nauseated. I told myself I did not trust this MD, PhD, Dr. Jackass. My terror was sectioned off from my awareness. I was glad he didn't know what had initiated my therapy with Dr. Liu over two months earlier. 
how confusing it all remained. More than that, I had drawn Dr. Paul's attention to it. I had gestured for him to come to me. Some part wanted someone else to know I had been abused. That part, the baby, seemed cornered, and she was crying for help, but still hiding details from me. I tried to put the interaction with Dr. Paul out of my mind. Dr. Liu's voice came back to me saying, You're not alone, and I shoved it down even as I thought, oh shit, maybe she's already been talking to me. Maybe that's what my journal entries are about. And that made me more afraid to hear her. The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.